I pray that everyone had an excellent Christmas holiday. We are moving from this time where we've celebrated Christ's birth, light from light, God made man. And we're moving into the rest of life where we celebrate him. So this, this celebration is never over. But our culture is moving towards the new year. And in the new year, we have these tricky little things called resolutions. And when we think about resolutions, when I think about resolutions, I think of failure. I think of the many times there have been resolutions to lose 10 pounds, and by October I've gained 20. It's just failure after failure. We all feel it. We all know what it's like to fail. As human beings, we are, by our essence, children of wrath, fallen failures. And so what does this mean for us? Is there hope? Yes, there is hope. Our great hope is found in the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as we trust in the Son of God who has won the victory for us, there is hope for our failure. There is hope not only for the failures, the little dinky resolutions we make, but there's hope to take us beyond the little commitment we make to do one specific thing, to find the big picture, that one target that we're all supposed to be aiming for. And that target, what we are all designed to love, adore, and worship is God and his glory. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it all to the glory of our God. We were made for him. And that's where we find our true victory. The whole tapestry of scripture points to Christ. The whole tapestry of scripture points human beings who have fallen and failed and have missed the mark to Christ. And so even though so often we we are concentrating on the arrow as we shoot it and we want it to fly just exactly straight, we don't often realize that we're completely missing the target. The target is God. And so it doesn't matter if we lose 10 pounds and we miss the God who made us and for whom we exist. What I want us to concentrate on today is the final victory, the ultimate victory that takes not only the arrows and makes them fly straight, but God will take the arrows that he gives us and he will shoot them straight to the very presence of God where we will find our satisfaction and joy forever. And as we've gone through five sermons on Jesus as the Son, all of these sermons have pointed us to God and to our joy in him. Jesus, the son of Abraham, as Wes Duggins preached for us. And as he also preached as Jesus, the son of woman, and Jesus, the son of David. So also last time I got to preach on Jesus, the son of man. And this time we're ending up the series with Jesus as the son of God. We're looking at the forest, not the trees in these sermons. Not just one individual text necessarily. You've heard a lot of verses as we've gone through these sermons. We're looking at the big picture of scripture, the whole storyline. And because of that, we will be going through many texts today. Uh, You'll see on your sermon outline there in your worship folder, it says selected texts. That's for a reason. So I'm going to chart the course for us. First, what I want us to do is to briefly introduce what it means to be a son of God in scripture. What does the Bible mean when it says son of God? Second, I want to show you this beautiful parallel in scripture. It's amazing. Between Exodus 16 
through 20 and Matthew 2 through 4. We're going to look at this parallel and we're going to see how Israel was the failing son of God, but Jesus is the victorious son of God who walked the same path and where there once was failure, now Jesus brings victory as the son of God. And then thirdly and finally, I want to go through what this means for us. So Israel failed. Jesus was victorious. Do we have victory? How do we obtain it? What does this mean? How do we become true sons of God and the true son of God? So as we begin, we're going to look at Jesus, the son of God in scripture, and Israel, the son of God. What does it mean to be son of God? Well, first I need to dispel a myth that's in our culture. Uh, People will say all the time, well, we're all children of God. Oh, we're all just children of God. And all children of God? No. I wish it were that way, but it's not. We're not all children of God. As a matter of fact, uh, when the Pharisees in John chapter 8 try to tell Jesus that they are the children of God, he corrects them rather bluntly. The Pharisees say, we have one father, even God. Then Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Then in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It's pretty harsh. The Pharisees were not considered children of God. Jesus calls them children of the devil. Why? Because they act like the devil. There's this idea uh, rooted in our own human nature and rooted in scripture that The son should resemble the father. The son, in some sense, should look like the father, have the same character, have the same goals, that there should be a resemblance. Well, (laughs) I think we're all guilty of trying to remove our own parenthood from some shenanigan our children do at some point. Uh, We've all said, uh, your son is hanging from a tree by pantyhose, or your daughter is eating from her plate like a dog. It's it's as if we're saying, this can't come from my genetic material. This cannot come from my character. But it does. And just because we blame it on our wife's genetic material doesn't mean that it's any better. So this idea that the son should reflect the father's character, that's number one. What what does it mean in the Bible that, that a son of God is a true son of God? He reflects God's character. Secondly, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I want to just hit three phrases. By the way, we're going to go through a lot of scripture here, so paper cut warning. You might flip to them. You might just wait and write them down and look at them later. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, number one, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God is the living God, and yet we are dead. Second, it says we are sons of disobedience. Not sons of God, but sons of disobedience. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Far from being children of God, we are children of God's wrath. Born into this world, that is our nature, like the rest of mankind. This is the big picture of who we are as human beings. Fallen, sinful, running from God, children of wrath. So then we see 
there is hope that breaks in to the storyline of Scripture. Israel was called a son of God. In Exodus 4, 22 through 23, it says, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. See, Israel is a son in the sense that Israel is in a special covenant relationship to God. Israel is a son because God has decided to let his character be shown in the earth. Let his, his grace, his love, his mercy, his holiness have representation. So he calls Israel his son. He gives Israel promises. Israel is called to reflect the character of God, just like Leviticus 19 and many other places say, Be holy, Israel, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. They're called to reflect his character. But ultimately, Israel points us to the true Son of God. Israel is a failing son, as we will see in just a second. Deeply failing. But the failing son is pointing us forward to the victorious son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will have all victory. And of that victorious son, 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, our ultimate goal, to know him, to know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. More than just being a representation of God's character on earth, Jesus is the exact representation of all divinity. He shares the very nature and essence of God. All-powerful, all-wise, and all-knowing, filling all space and all time. There is nothing he cannot do, nothing he does not know, and he uses all of that power for perfect good, perfect love, perfect truth. This is the essence and nature of God. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would never fail because God cannot fail. So now let's turn and let's look at these parallel stories in Scripture. I hope you find these as amazing and fascinating as I do. So turn to Exodus 16. And first we're going to tell the story of Israel, the failing son. And then we're going to tell the story of Jesus, the victorious son. And I want you to notice that these run exactly parallel. It's amazing. And I want you to listen closely as we go through the story of Israel in Exodus 16 through 20. Because you're going to hear a lot of the same things as we talk about Jesus, the true son of God to whom Israel points, the victorious son of God, as we go through Matthew 2 through 4. So first of all, Israel came out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son, God says in Hosea 11.1. 1. And they were slaves there, slaves in Egypt, in, in chains, in bonds. They were being oppressed. And God rescued them by a mighty and powerful, miraculous deliverance. He parted the Red Sea and brought them through and then crashed the waves down on the enemies that followed them pursuing them. Merely two months later, they found themselves in a place called the wilderness of sin. English, it's sin. Hebrew doesn't mean the same thing. So I, 
don't, don't get bogged down on that. But we're in the wilderness of sin. It's kind of indicative, though. And Israel's getting hungry. Israel is finding that their supplies are running short. They need help. Their, their tummies are grumbling. So we're in the wilderness of sin, and the theme for this is that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In Exodus 16, we see this story. And in Exodus 16, 2 through 3, it says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See, Israel was a failing son of God because they preferred slavery and full stomachs to the freedom to follow God and to fill their souls with the riches of his glory and splendor. But still God was gracious to them. He provided for these failing sons, for these sinful Israelites who would not trust him, but trusted their stomachs. They wanted sensual pleasure. They wanted it now. So they grumbled. They did not trust. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 says of this, it recaps the whole story. It says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This is a test for Israel. So far, they're failing. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we're moving from Exodus 16 and the wilderness of sin. Now to Exodus 17. We're at a place called Masa, and Masa means testing, and that is the theme of Masa. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy speaks of this and says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Masa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You see, here Israel got thirsty. They were hungry last time, now they're thirsty. And as they thirsted, this time they didn't just grumble, they demanded. They said to Moses, give us water. Give us water. This is not an attitude of submission. The light in God, a, a patience, a waiting on the Lord. This is an attitude of, I want my way now. I will not suffer for you, God. I will not walk this path. I want my path. I want my way and I want it now. A proper response would have been to patiently wait on the Lord and call to him and and humbly request that God would meet these needs. You know what? He would have. Because even when they demanded it in sin, God was still gracious and provided water. So the theme here, do not test the Lord your God. Now we move on to Sinai. Exodus 19 and 20. And at Sinai, the theme is idolatry. And our theme verse is, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. In Exodus 19 through 20, the high mountain of Sinai, where God thundered from the mountain as they waited for his presence to be with them. 
Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. When confronted with this great weight and glory of God, his holiness made manifest through so many signs, horrifying signs, The Israelites were right to be afraid, but they were wrong to think that they could run from this God and somehow be safe. This is the God who fills all the earth. And what did they do? They went off and they waited a while. When Moses didn't come back down from the mountain, they made for themselves a calf out of rings they took out of their ears, melted the gold down, and made a calf, a dumb cow. And they worshipped it. Instead of worshipping the one whose hands had made them, they decided to worship something that their own hands could make. They fled from the glory and power of God, who alone could fill our human souls to overflowing and meet our every need forever. And they ran to something that they made. It's going to pass away. That golden calf does not exist today. But they chose the lesser route, the less scary route. They did not trust that God was dependable, that he would do as he said, as he had called them his son, that he would love them as a son. And still, though God's hot anger burned against them, still God relented. He did not destroy them. He did not destroy them because there was someone else who had walked their path. And this time he would succeed. He would be victorious in every way. Who is that that new son of God, the victorious son of God? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies himself with the failing people of God to walk in their shoes. If you look at Matthew 2, 14 through 15, And then maybe put a finger back in Hosea 11.1. After all the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, find Daniel and Hosea. So look look there in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And then also at Matthew 2.14-15. As you get there, I want you to notice Matthew is quoting Hosea. See, I can't even find it. And in 11.1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So God is here speaking of Israel as a child. Out of Egypt, God calls his son. Then in Matthew 2.14-15, we see this great parallel. It's coming into focus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born as a man. And he, as a babe was threatened by Herod. His life was in danger. 
And so Joseph, in verse 14 of chapter 2, said, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Christ is identified with Israel. He is identified with Israel because Israel had no hope except for being united to Christ, the true son. The failing son had to be united to Christ, the true son. So Christ took on Israel's woes, Israel's fate, and he walked the same path that they had walked in failure. And as we are about to see, he walked that path in victory. After he came out of Egypt, Jesus went through waters the waters of baptism. And in Matthew 3.17, the voice from heaven cries out, this is my son whom I dearly love. And then after going through those waters of baptism, after being in Egypt, Christ then goes where? But into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He went into the wilderness to be tempted. He went into the wilderness to be tested just like Israel had gone into the wilderness to be tested. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Well, first off, he goes through the same trials. So where Israel went to the wilderness of sin, and they hungered, so too. Starting in verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sound familiar? This time Jesus did not grumble against God. Jesus did not demand something that he did not have given to him by God. He simply took the course that God had set before him. And as Satan tempted him to use his powers in an illegitimate way, Christ trusted God. And Christ was seeking something higher. God and his word. He would live by God's word, not by merely his stomach. Christ was pointing to God where Israel had pointed to self. Secondly, Matthew 4, 5 through 7, where Israel was in Massa, the place of testing, says in verse 5, the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Israel failed, where they demanded from God that God would provide exactly the way they wanted, Jesus did not put himself in a position where he would demand of God that God act in some miraculous way. The only reason that Jesus would have jumped from the pinnacle of the temple is to make God prove that God would care for him, the Son of God. It was doubt that would have made him jump. 
But the Son of God could never fail. The Son of God would not demand something of God out of faithlessness, but the Son of God would trust in pure faith. He would not fail. He is the victorious Son of God. Lastly, where Israel was at Sinai and was tempted by idolatry and failed, we see that Jesus, in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, again, the devil, uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain, reminiscent of Sinai, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Where Israel fled from the great glory of the God who thundered from the mountain, Jesus Christ saw the path, the weighty, difficult horrifying path laid out before him as the Son of God that would lead ultimately to the cross. He saw how difficult it would be to bring failing sons of God to the very presence of God. And just as he had trusted God to provide, and just as he had trusted God to love him and care for him appropriately, now he trusted God and God's path, not the shortcut that Satan had provided for him, if he would only worship Satan. Jesus Christ, his heart was Godward always. He knew what we were designed for. He knew what the greatest good of all the universe was. Our Lord, the God of all creation, the ancient of days, he is the eternal joy of man. And what did Jesus do? He, he left those temptations, went out, to the wilderness, out of the wilderness, and began to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. Jesus has won. And he carried our griefs. He carried our sorrows all the days of his life. And he healed sickness. He cast out demons. And ultimately, the crown of his victory was also the greatest picture of defeat. He carried our defeat to the cross. God of God, light of light, took on all of our failure. And as he came to the cross, he took the human flesh that he had united himself with. The same human flesh that you and I fail in every day. And Jesus Christ offered that flesh to the nails, to the scourge, everything that we deserve. The punishment for running away from the God who alone is good. And seeking our arrogant little selves. He offered his hands to the punishment of the nails, but the flesh of Christ that was tortured is only the outward torture. He also carried the sin of our souls, that, that horrible, ugly, disgusting rebellion that is in each of our hearts. God the Father poured his wrath on the true Son of God who was standing in the place of all of us, children of wrath, who would hide in him. And the Son of God, as darkness swept over the earth, as he hung there for hours on the cross, would eventually breathe his last. And then it would become evident 
that this was no ordinary man. This was no ordinary man. The earth quaked. Tombs were opened. Saints long dead rose from their graves and walked around Jerusalem. And the temple where God's presence was, the veil that kept men from entering God's presence was torn, just as Jesus' body was torn to bring us into the very presence of God. He was victorious at every stage, every temptation. He faced and was victorious. He conquered. And then, as he lay in the tomb, it would not hold him because the Son of God could not be held by death, could not be held by a mere grave. The Son of God rose victorious. The Son of God conquered the grave, conquered our sin, conquered our failure, conquered the distance between us and God, sons of disobedience from our great and holy God. And the Son of God, who once thundered from the mountain, now rose into the clouds of heaven and sits at the very right hand of God Almighty and reigns over you and I. He is in control. He rules the nations. He is the victorious king, the greater son of the great son, King David. He is the great Messiah, king, the son of God. And he rules over our failures. He rules over our sin. And he has brought us to the very presence of God if we hide in him. If we hide in him. So what does it mean for us? How do we hide in this Son of God and find ourselves as sons of God in him? Believers are made victorious sons of God as we trust him. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive him. We give up on our own failures and we receive the victor. Everyone, not just Israel, but everyone who would receive him. He gave the right to be children of God. If we receive this gift of the Son and trust him, he covers the path of our failure with victory. And we are sons of God in him. And there are two Aspects of this victorious path I want to talk about. The first is how he did cover our sin. He went back and basically painted over Israel's sin and failure with his victory. I, I remember painting my house, and my son really wanted to help out. And so I gave him a quick opportunity. It was quick. And as he went down the wall, six years old, he hit the brush, he slung the brush, he did all sorts of things that didn't exactly look even. And so I just came behind him, and I rolled right over it, and wow, like nothing ever happened. That's great. Thing is, is that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He walked the same path. He has covered over our failure with victory. And that paint that he covered us with will never be removed. There is no way we can get back to our failure. It is gone. He has covered our failing path. 
but he's also paved a new and victorious path. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We trust him to be the Son of God. And our belief in him overcomes the world because he has overcome the world. We trust the one who's done it for us. Our faith. Trust. Put your trust in him. We can't any longer think of this faith as some quick ticket to heaven. We have to think of what God has done for us in terms of bringing us to God. Every place that Israel failed, they were running from God. They were disobedient to God. They were not trusting God. Now, every place that he was victorious, he was pointing to God, to God's word, to depending on him, to worshiping him. He's pointing us to God. He's bringing us to God in great power. So as you're worried about walking a life that you will certainly fail at, you will never be sinlessly perfect in this life. As you're worried about walking this path, stop worrying. He reigns. He reigns over your failures. And he will organize and order those failures for your ultimate good. And what is your ultimate good? To know God. Not just to lose 10 pounds. It's ridiculously little. Our ultimate good is to crave God in everything we do. And then all of those little things fall right into place. Pointing us to God in victory. So we walk following him following the path he walked in victory, and we are victorious in him. This is a great, great hope to us. The victorious path that Christ has paved for us. We have new birth in him. We are sons of God in him. Our trust gives us this new birth, and it gives us victory. So what does this mean for the guilt that we all carry? In this room, I know that there are people who have great guilt that they carry. There's people who committed all sorts of sexual immorality, adultery, there have been abortions, there have been lies, greed, substance abuse, addiction. There's all sorts of guilt that people carry along with them. What does this mean for us? It means that we have to stop trusting the path that we've walked. Forget about our failures and forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. It's that high calling of Jesus Christ. We look to him, our victor. And as he has covered over our messed up wall, (laughs) as he has covered over our failed path, his victory rings for us forever. And Our guilt is gone. It doesn't even belong to us anymore. Our guilt was placed on Jesus Christ's back. The Son of God carried it to the cross, and he received all the punishment that God could muster for our sins, past, present, and future. That sin, that guilt, does not belong to you who trust in the Son of God. He has overcome your sin. He's overcome your guilt. It's not yours. Don't try to steal it back. Let him have it. He suffered and died for those of us who would believe that he is the Son of God. The guilt is gone.
Some of us ask the question, even after we've trusted the Son of God, am I good enough? Could I even consider myself to be a Christian? So often I, I sin. I just sin again and again. And even when I think I'm doing right, I reflect later and my motives were horrible. First of all, there's not a man on earth who always does good and never sins. This is our common lot. But Christ has won the victory. Perhaps he's allowing you to struggle with that sin so that you could depend on his victory, so that you could learn to trust him in ways that you never imagined. Are you good enough? No. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed to trust that the Son of God is victorious, you are victorious in him. He has covered it over. There is no way you can chip the paint that he has covered your mistakes with. You cannot get it off that wall. It is covered forever. It's 2,000 years in the past. God's wrath is spent. There's nothing left for you. There's no more disappointment. There's no more guilt. You are free. So take up your freedom as a son of God and confidently follow after him. Love him. Chase him. And you will find that you are more and more free and more and more victorious day after day, year after year. This is the heritage of the sons of God, freed from the bounds of sin. Guilt paralyzes our spiritual growth and we have to be rid of it. Church, how can we, who the only way we can overcome our sin is to take it to God, how can we take this path that we've walked full of failure and say, this is my path, and then we see God and we're afraid of him because of our guilt. And so we say, oh God, oh, don't look at that. Maybe, oh God, I just need to go take a time out for five days before I come back and pray to you. I know I'm not worthy right now. I just can't, can't do this right now. I'll just hide my face from you. And I will try not to even think about your glory. You've taken yourself away from everything that would heal you. What is our response to sin? We run to the victor. And we trust that he has covered our guilt and he has taken it away from us. So we sin and Suddenly our hearts ache and we say, why did I do this again? And so we run to Christ and in fear as we come to this thundering mountain, we bow down and we say, Christ has come here before me and he has covered over my guilt and he has brought me to God. And now I can pray and bask and glory in your presence. I confess my sin, yes, but I don't wallow in it. I glory in the God who has done away with it. It's not mine. And as I glory in him, I find new strength and new power. And I have new love for the God who has saved me and has been victorious in my place. My path of failure is gone. All I have left is this path of victory. I have victory in him. Run to him. If you have been struggling with a sin for a very long time, trust that God has not abandoned you. He hasn't. There is no way a father could abandon a son. You know, in many circumstances, my, my sons, my, my daughters, they, they will do things that they really shouldn't. And if they run out into the street, I will definitely be there to pull them away from the street. And sometimes I'll watch them do some pretty bad things that I know aren't going to hurt them, but they're going to learn a lesson from. And it'll be better for them in the end. You know, in the same way, sometimes I think God lets us struggle with sin 
So we learn self to, to be rid of self-dependence. We don't want to learn self-dependence. To be rid of self-dependence. To be rid of pride. To be rid of that thought that it's all about me and it's all about me doing away with my own sin instead of just looking at Christ, glorying in him, basking in him, and being healed by him. And so while you are struggling with that sin that might even make you think, how can I be a Christian? Know that as you trust in the Son of God who was victorious, even if you died in the middle of that sin, you would appear before him in majesty and he who covered over your sin would welcome you and you would be reconciled to him. So be reconciled to him immediately and seek him and battle his battle with him. Follow him. He is your captain. And he will go through all of this sin life that you struggle with and that seems to take your joy away. And he will show you how evil and horrid and dirty and black it is. And he will show you how glorious and lovely the holiness of God is. And that is where your sin disappears. Not just in concentrating what's next on the list. If we are list-keeping Christians, I know that there's a lot of list-keepers in here. If we are list-keeping Christians, we have the next thing on our to-do to be rid of lust. And that's all we can think about. Be rid of lust. And that's what we're concentrating on. Tom Schreiner has a great quote. The great mistake of legalism is to detach the law from the God who gave it. So also, if we are legalists, we say... If I don't keep the law perfectly, God will not love me. And so we divorce ourselves from the God who, who gave that law. Secondly, if, if we look at lust and we think that I can overcome it and this lust is something separate from God and I just have to fight this battle on my own and I divorce this one law that God has given from the God has, who has given it, I will never win because I am not victorious on my own. God alone is victorious. So don't divorce your sin battles and, and categorize them into this little thing right here or this little thing right here. I've really got to get done with this. Christ will win a million victories in your heart as he humbles you as you battle with sin. Victories you never expected. See, if, if God just suddenly... By the way, all of my sin battles are long. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I very rarely just come to Christ and said, oh... I, I see what you're telling me. I need to change this. This does not reflect your character. And then the next day, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm done. It's gone. I'll never think about that again. All of my sin battles tend to be long. And I think that God is teaching us that those aspects of his char character that he's showing us that we don't line up with, he's saying, look, I'm not just going to heal this and let you be prideful about it. God doesn't flash fry us. So that the outside is warm and gushy, but the inside is ice cold. He wants our hearts to be fully warmed with his glory. So he puts us in the slow bank. And he heals our pride. And he heals our self-dependence. And he heals everything that would take us away from God, who is our life. And he brings us to life. He's more concerned that you are with him than you are fighting this little battle out here on your own. Your goal in life is to love and worship God and let him be victorious over your every sin and your every struggle because what does sin do? Ultimately, it takes you away from God. And what does God do? He takes you to himself. So rest in him. Rest in his victory. And as we rest in his victory, 
We can rest that as we struggle to make life decisions, as a child of God Almighty who reigns over all the earth, we're not going to mess it up. If we seek him, if we love him, if we worship him, and as we're worshiping him, we're saying, God, what would you like me to do? Where can I go? Be confident in making those decisions. You're not going to throw your whole life into a wreck if you are a son of God. God may let you make a bad decision out of sin, but he will teach you something from that bad decision, and he will make you a glory to himself as you recover from that bad decision. So one way or the other, make the decisions and the confidence that God the Father loves you with a great fatherly love and that you will not slip out of his hands and he's not going to come back and say, oh, I can't believe you did that. Well, that's it. Only wrath for you for the rest of your life. That is not the loving father that we have who has made us sons of God. Finally, attempt great things for God. You have the victory. We don't have to sit in mediocrity. We don't have to sit in the same old, same old. God has a mission for you, your life. He bought you with a great price. The Son of God died and rose again to make your life count for his glory and to make you enjoy every moment of it. From the moment you walk with him in sharing the gospel, walk with him in serving, walk with him to, to dare to go to that mission trip, to, to send the papers in, even though you don't know where the money's going to come from, even though you don't know if the deadlines are going to be met, you follow him and you say, God, I want to serve you. And the more we see this God who loved us so much, the more we will want to serve him. Be confident, be victorious in him. There is a quote that Gary Brumley shared with me. I don't know if this guy is a Christian. Not, Gary's a Christian. I don't know if this guy, Nicholas Murray Butler, is a Christian. <laughs> Optimism... <laughs> Optimism is essential to achievement and is also the foundation of courage and true progress. That's the Nicholas Murray Butler quote. Gary, the Christian, I, was talking to me about this and he said, you know, optimism, no, it's not what Nicholas Murray Butler thinks it is. Why would we have optimism as children of wrath? We have no reason for optimism. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ, the victor. And so we trust Jesus Christ, the victor, and suddenly we can expect great things from God for us in our lives as we raise our children in him, as we love our wives. We can, we can dare, in the midst of that, that angry dispute, to reach across the kitchen, to touch a shoulder that we think is going to shock us to death, <laughs> and to say, I'm sorry. And even if that spouse turns around and yells at us and screams at us, we have the comfort of knowing that we are beloved by the Father and that he has our hearts and that he will work all things for our good. It's a great promise as children of God. We have victory. Dare to live for him, not because you have anything to offer, but because he has offered you everything. We are co-heirs with Christ. Heirs most importantly of the perfect love of God the Father. One day the Son of God is returning. When he does, all of us who are sons of God will be hidden in him. And our lives will come back and appear with him in the clouds as he returns. And he will do away with everything 
that opposes him and his character. But we will be hidden in him from the coming storm. We don't have to worry about that coming storm. What we do need to worry about is that if we do not trust the Son of God, we have no shelter, we have no refuge, we have no rock. And that storm will come down in full force on us because if we are not in the Son of God as sons of God, we are children of wrath. Brothers and sisters, hide yourselves in the cleft of the rock. Trust Jesus Christ with your past sins, with your present, with your future. He is victorious. He stands right now in victory, won for you, if you would believe. If you have never thought to trust in this Christ before, I beg you to please talk to a member of this church that's sitting in the pews next to you. Come to the front after the service is over. Talk to the pastors, the ministers that will be up here. Please look into seeking this God through the Son of God who died to set us free. Come to him as a believer. Struggle with guilt. Talk to other believers about this great God and what he's done for you. Talk to the pastors, ministers, whoever you want to come to. But be done with your guilt because Christ has finished it. And live a life of victory for him. Let's pray. Almighty God, great Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, we pray that you would be victorious in us. That we would not wallow in sin, but that you would conquer it as we trust you and look to you. And most of all, we ask that you would give us victory in coming and basking in your presence and your eternal love and your great glory in the, the beauty of our infinite God who fills our hearts to overflowing. Lord, fill us. Satisfy our souls. Give us victory. Thank you for walking in our failure shoes. And thank you that now we own your victory. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.